Well, thank you, Mike and <coughs> Laura and Josh and Carol for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, and also, Roger Huseland reading us a scripture reading and prayer. Uh, if you did not know, Roger was voted in as the Sunday School Superintendent, and uh, he's taken on that that ministry this year and you can be praying for him and all of our teachers that um, that work to serve our children in this Sunday school hour uh, it's a good work uh, and we need help and uh, so uh, you can pray for Roger and, and the teachers involved in that if you have your Bibles let me invite you to open them to the Gospel of John Gospel of John chapter 6 and I want to encourage you to bring your Bible with you uh, if you don't have one, you can use the one in the pew in front of you and keep it open um, just so you can see if what I'm saying is what it's saying. So that's good. Have it there and uh, we can work through that together. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter number 6 uh, this morning, uh, verses 22 through, I'm going to read verses 22 through uh, 51 is a rather lengthy passage of scripture. We won't deal with all of that in this sermon. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get to verse 40, uh, 41, uh, verse 22 to 41. So you can follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowds, uh, crowd, crowd, well, that's a good way to start, isn't it? So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you, are, uh, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they sent, or they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. May God bless the reading of his word applied to our hearts this morning. Jesus was a miracle worker, uh, no doubt. We just saw that a couple of weeks ago of him taking a small lunch and feeding 5,000 people. In fact, uh, it was his miracles and signs which uh, uh, stirred on this crowd to seek him in the first place. We read that in the beginning of chapter number 6 in verse number 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We spoke uh, the last time we were together in John that Jesus was a man of prayer. But it's also worth noting that Jesus was a preacher. When I was at the Shepherds Conference, I went to a breakout session. It was uh, Alex Montoya who was giving a talk on pastors and preaching, pastoral preaching. And he kept saying, you're a preacher, you're a preacher. And then he would rebuke us and uh, instruct us during his breakout session all that to say, Jesus was a, uh, a preacher. He spoke unlike his contemporaries of his day, the Bible tells us. In fact, Mark gives us a glimpse of Jesus in the beginning of his ministry saying, he came out of the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we know we read in the word of God that no one spoke like this man. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees of his day spoke of the authorities of the elders and the traditions of the, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers gone by. They're busy quoting each other. And while they're doing that, Jesus stands on his own authority and says in these famous statements, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly, I say to you, uh, and revealing the Father's word and his will to us. Well, Jesus does much in his preaching for us in as we read it through the word of God, some people have studied it to find out better ways to communicate and to give illustrations because nobody did it like Jesus. You remember he says, look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field as he is trying to teach us something about the Father and his care for us. And others suggest we ought to consider the life and ministry of Jesus and his speaking by the way he he interacts and asks questions, which is a good thing to do. I think we could learn a lot in that way. But mostly, I think when we come to Jesus in these lengthy sections in our Bible, if your Bible has Jesus' words in red, is that they are exposing to us. In fact, not only exposing what is going on in his day and who Jesus thinks he is, but they are exposing us he speaks with a sharpness and with a clarity which we we need to hear. And that's what you have here in verse is 22 through the end of the chapter. Jesus dealing with uh, the repercussions of this miracle of feeding 5,000 and this lengthy discourse on this declaration of who he is that we read in verse number 35. As he makes the first of seven I am statements. He says, Jesus saying to them, I am the bread of life. And all of this narrative is revolving around who he is and what that means. So I'd like to walk through this with you. And we'll just take the first part of this today and try to finish it up next week, Lord willing. Uh, and look at Jesus' interaction with the people that are 
truly seeking him in one fashion and see how he deals with them and then how it speaks to us today. And the first of which I would say is that Jesus confronts the multitude's motivation. Notice again, verse number 22. On the next day, the crown that remained on the other side where he fed them uh, of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And the boats in Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea saying unto him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So we begin this narrative and this discourse, and as you read the end of this section, it seems that all of this took place in the synagogue, in the synagogue at Capernaum. Uh, people are seeking him. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? People are looking for Jesus. They're searching him down. They're hunting him down. They woke up the next morning. They knew the disciples were gone. Jesus hadn't got into the boat. They knew that. And, and so they're looking for him. Where is he? And, and what are we going to have today? What, what's going to happen today? And, and surely there was a great deal of curiosity. And we already noted that the Bible tells us that this, this crowd was a zealous bunch. They saw the miracles that Jesus did, perceiving, um, verse number 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Here's a zealous group of people seeking Jesus, looking and wanting to make him king. And it appears at the surface of this, Jesus and company is about to explode with growth. It's a good thing, isn't it? And yet here Jesus exposes their motivation, the small talk. How did you get here, Jesus? Some suggest maybe they were asking, what miracle did you do? Uh, does it matter? I think it's more of an icebreaker kind of question. They were asking him, so how did you get here? Kind of now what's going to go on? What's next? And notice how Jesus responds to them in verse number 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They come across the sea. They made that long trip. They were looking for him, not because they saw the signs and they connected the dot with who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. They, they sought him, according to Jesus' words, because you had a full belly. Because I gave you a good meal you didn't have to work for and, and, and you were satisfied in that. So you're coming looking for breakfast, basically, is what we see here going on. In fact, it reminds us of Isaiah's words uh, as Isaiah sent out to preach to the nation of Israel in chapter 6 and 9. And he says, go say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. They had seen a bona fide miracle that Jesus performed. In fact, it was these miracles which, as we already said, that attracted them to Jesus in the first place. He feeds 5,000 with this small lunch, plus the women and children. And they come looking for him not because they recognize that he is from God and, and the Messiah. And they come looking for him because they were satisfied. Because their belly was full. It was their curiosity to search him out. 
It was the satisfaction of their appetites which caused them to make the trek to figure out where he was. John Piper, in a sermon on this, has asserted, I think rightly, Jesus did not primarily come to be useful. Now, I'll let that sit with you for a while because after I listened to it and read it, it sat with me for a while, but I agree with him. His main purpose in coming wasn't so that these people, these 5,000 people, would find meal number two and meal number three. In fact, what we find out is that their desire in Jesus was not only wrong, but it was way too low. They were just looking for what they could get from him, what he would give to them. They were looking out of their own self-interest or self-preservation not for who he truly was and the true benefits and riches which he has came to give. Now there are many in our culture today that are attracted to this reality of miracles and wealth and success. Look at Christianity as a means of gain, religion of self-interest and a Instead of treasuring Christ, it is treasuring what Christ can give. And I think it is demonic. And I think it has turned the gospel into a self-gratification, a gospel of prosperity, or we might say it another way, a gospel of simply getting stuff. And Jesus did not come for that end. They were looking for him. They were seeking him. They had went on the journey, but they were coming because they were set in themselves and they were looking at the here and now, not because of who he was. They saw his miracles, but they did not see him. And that's why John uses the terminology signs because they were meant to show us something of the nature and the reality of the one performing the signs. And they saw the the event, they saw the miracle, but they could not see beyond it to what it pointed to. So he confronts their motivation. But notice secondly, verses 27 through 33, he seeks to correct, as he does ours, their focus. Verse 27, he goes on to say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. That is quite an interesting phrase, isn't it? Let me just mention what he is not saying. I think it might be helpful. He is not saying that it is sinful or it is wrong to go to work so that you can buy groceries and food to eat. Would you agree with that? That'd be a good place to say yes. Do you agree with that? There you go. We're on the same page. Second Thessalonians three ten. You know that passage very well. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul's very adamant about that. Those who want to take off of others and not work and just go about in, uh, in their own business and, and waiting until the Lord comes back, Paul says that is sinful. They're not to eat if they're not to work. And we see Jesus even telling us in the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray to the Lord for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew six eleven, as well as we give thanks for the provision which God has provided. Uh, John six eleven, he 
gave thanks before he broke the bread and gave it. So he's not saying that it is sinful or wrong to work for food. Is confronting these people is that they are earthly, they are sensual, they are looking at the temporary instead of the eternal. That's all they're focused on. And we see this kind of play on ideas. Don't work for food that perishes and work for food that endures into eternal life. And you scratch your head at the end of the day. It's like, what in the world is he getting at? Well, you and I both know that hunger and thirst are humanity's basic desire. Our basic need. It speaks of our deep longing for satisfaction and the absence of food and the absence of water over a prolonged period of time are immediate, significant, and dominant forces in our life. Would you agree with that? So if we carried on here till 12 o'clock this morning and your eyes started glossing over, your stomach started growling, the thing that you're thinking about is not what I'm saying, it's lunch. So hunger and desire, hunger and longing. And so you see this kind of play on ideas. We see it in the Psalms as well, Psalms 42, where he speaks about God in this language of thirst. Notice uh, 42, 1 and 2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is there a deep longing in your heart for God? A deep thirst that only he can satisfy? These people were wrapped up in the materialistic world. The kingdom of God to them was about here and now. There's something more significant, something greater promised to us, something, uh, something more permanent that Jesus says that is offered to them. Don't work for the things that perish but work for those things that stay. There are appetites, longings in our heart and our soul that only God himself can fill. I think that's what he's telling these people. You're wrapped up in this and you've missed the significance of who Jesus is. You've missed the satisfaction that he has come to provide. Even Ecclesiastes reminds us that God has put eternity in our hearts and that the filling of that eternity is only found in the provision of God. It's found in Jesus Christ. What is true, you and I, most of what we face and go after today diminishes right in front of us. Just up here, you just think about a car you buy and... (laughs) You just wash it rust in the driveway, don't you? And fall to pieces. Everything decays. Everything has a shelf life. All the pursuits that we go after in this life and we are consumed with, they all are, are, are just temporary fixes. And Jesus says there's, there's something greater. There's a greater treasure and a greater fulfillment that remains or that persists is what he says here. There's a food that perishes in verse number 27, but there's a food that endures to eternal life. And there's a big difference, a difference these people need to see. Now, if there is a deep satisfaction to our deepest longings and desires to our deepest need, the question would be, where do we get it and how do we get it? Wouldn't you agree? 
If I'm telling you this morning that that God has provided for us or there is a provision for us to satisfy our, our deepest longings of food, a substance that will never perish and, and gives us fulfillment, then naturally we say, well, where do you get this stuff at? And so Jesus goes on and tells us in verse 27, doesn't he? This food that endures into eternal life is from the Son of Man, is the food which he gives to us. And so these people are coming and looking for temporary food from this rabbi, this teacher, miracle worker, and he's saying, don't you understand, it is from me, it's from the Son of Man that eternal food is offered to you. And the Bible points us again over and over to Jesus Christ as the source and substance of our life, all of our hope. Well, if that's the source, if it's in the Son of Man, it is, and what he gives to us, then we might ask the the follow-up question, well, how do we get it? What do we got to do? I mean, how much money, literally, do we got to put in the box back there? And how many times we got to visit a sick person or, or, or whatever it is that we do for good works to get this kind of satisfaction and fulfillment? That's what they ask him, right? Verse number 29 or 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we be doing or what must we do to be doing the works of God? They wanted the bread. They wanted provision. So what do I do to get it? What kind of work? What kind of ritual that I have to go through? What kind of of certain steps must I do to receive this kind of gift, this kind of satisfaction? And Jesus answers that in verse number 25. And actually, the, the question is rather loaded, isn't it? What works must we do? You remember the young man who comes to Christ and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He sets the law in front of him and he says, do all these things. The man says, I've done all these. What more do I need to do? And Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor and and come and follow me and you'll be rich in heaven. And he could not do it because he proves to us in that little narrative, in that encounter that there was nothing he could do sufficient enough completely enough to merit eternal life, to earn it. These people misguided in their assessment of their own ability and their own goodness could not keep the law of God, have not kept the law of God up to this point, and yet they look to Jesus and say, give us something else that we can do that we might have this eternal life. In fact, what we find from a converted Pharisee who spent his life doing and working in Romans 3.20, he says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Do you get that? There's nothing you can do. No works, no outward demonstration, no... no merit you can gain, no law or no set of rules that... God could give you more than what he has already given you that you could follow after and then, and then be justified in his sight, then be satisfied. It's just impossible. And so Jesus answers this in verse number 29. Notice with me in the text. He says, this is the work of God. So the people ask him, what do we need to be doing? It's a good question. 
mis, misguided. And so Jesus answered them, you want to know what the work of God is. You, know, you want to know what God requires of you. And is this not applicable to us today? What does God require of you? If there is this gift of satisfaction that, that comes from the Son of Man, if that is where the source is found, this, this bread which comes down from heaven, verse number 35, and he's the source of it, then how do we receive it? What does God require of us that we may obtain it? And so he says, here's the work of God. This is what God requires of you, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Isn't that beautiful? He points them to the gospel imperative, doesn't he? And, and actually, the very thrust of the gospel of John, it is believe. It isn't just simply faith as, as kind of an idea, as a noun, but believe as a verb. We are to, to put our trust and we're to believe on the Son of God, the one whom the Father has sent. We may not offer up sacrifices like Cain of our good works and our merits. God is not impressed by the good things that we have done in this life because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you know what God in his graces <clears throat> has done for us in Christ? He's given to us what you and I can never earn. And add his hand to those who believe. <clears throat> That is very clear here. But they don't get it, do they? Verse number 30. <clears throat> so he has come to correct their focus. They were focused on here and now and not on eternity. They were focused on work and not faith. And here they're focused on things and not a person. In each of these situations, Jesus is trying to correct their point of view. Notice verse number 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What are they saying to Jesus? Well, they're simply saying, prove it. And you say all this stuff is true. Prove you are from God. And if you prove you are from God in a dramatic way, in a, in a, in a, in a large kind of setting, then we'll believe that you are from God. Now, Jesus doesn't take them up on their bet. Had he have done that, then he would have granted justification for their motives of seeking him. And Jesus already condemned their motivations as wrong and sinful and base and carnal. And so he will not justify their motives by giving them manna from heaven. But don't think that Jesus had not been proven to be who he was in front of them. Notice back with me at the end of verse number 27. He says this source of this food that endures to eternal life is the Son of Man who will give to you. For on him, speaking of the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. God has verified, validated that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at his baptism. And not just his baptism, but in the miracles and in the sermons and all that Jesus did up to this point was a continual reminder that God is with him in a profound way. But if our whole basis for believing in God is on signs and miracles and the supernatural and things like that, then we will never be satisfied. We will never be grounded in our faith if we can't take it from the word of God and what God said. 
if we keep moving from one thing to the next thing like these, we saw you feed 5,000. We, we were there. We witnessed it. We were going to make you king. But show us something even greater than that. How about manna, for example? Notice verse number 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread from heaven. It's like they can't get lunch out of their mouth. I know some of you are probably hungry because I mentioned lunch several times. Should have ate breakfast before you came. And... Uh, will be done at some point so you can endure but they were fixated on food weren't they they could not get past it now it should be said that some uh, and some sources suggest that Jesus or that the Jews believe that when the Messiah come he would bring with him this gift of manna again like Moses did maybe Maybe that's what's happening here, and, and people are saying, well, if you're truly the Messiah, Moses gave us manna. If you're the, another prophet that's come after him, then you will give us manna too, and how convenient that would be. Wouldn't that be great? Just go outside and pick it up and, and eat. You wouldn't have to, I mean, it's there for you. And Jesus gives them a correction, doesn't he? Well, first of all, he corrects him in the fact that it was not Moses that gave you bread from heaven, but my father. And not only did my father give you that bread, but he points them to the current reality that Jesus himself is the bread. So it isn't what we might receive from the hand of Christ that is significant. He's pointing us back here when he, in this statement that he himself, that is what we receive, all of him. But my father gives you, in this kind of current understanding of this present tense, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. You cannot have Christianity apart from Christ. Would you agree with that? You can't just go nitpicking through the Bible and pick up some good Christian morals and, and tie yourself to a label called Christianity without Jesus Christ. It, it is nonsensical. It is impossible. You can be a moral person. You can have Christian ethics, but you cannot be Christian without Christ. And he reiterates this. We cannot receive his gifts without receiving him. We're not just coming for the food that comes from his hand, but we're coming for him, him he himself. And he reiterates this. Let me just share a few verses, walk through a few of these with you in this narrative as he considers himself the provision of God where he notice verse 32 and verse 33 verse 35 he says I am the bread of life who verse 41 I am the bread that has come down from heaven verse 48 I am the bread of life verse 51 I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He has come to give us himself. He's correcting their focus. They're looking for something. And he says what they need is found in a person. They were looking for the temporary and he is pointing them to the eternal. They were they were misguided. But thirdly, notice as he continues, verse number 35. He confronts them, corrects them. 
Verse 35, he comforts, brings comfort to those who come to him. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Of course, that great I am statement tying us back to that divine name of God back in the book of Exodus, chapter number three. God reveals himself, I am the I am, I am who I am. As he defines himself here as being the bread of life. Notice the promise after this. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Isn't that an amazing promise? Coming to Jesus, believing in him, gives us the promise of fullness that we will not hunger and that we will not thirst again. Not physical. He's not talking about uh, about our natural bodies and eating and that, but what we long for, our deepest desires and our deepest needs are met or satisfied in Jesus. In church, we need to be reminded of that because we have a, a lot of imitations out there. We have a lot of things that boast and promise that if you get this, earn this, strive for this, reach this point, then, then you will be ultimately satisfied. You will, in, in that sense, in their gospel promise, be saved or be complete. And it's a lie. No, it's only, it's only given to us and promised to us in the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He gives life to us. Everlasting life to those who come to him. But I want you to notice verse number 36 with me. Because if the positive is true, those who come to him, if it's true that they will never hunger or thirst and, and those who come to him will live, then those who do not come to him will die and they will perish and they will remain empty and they will remain in their hunger. They will be like the food which they feed themselves and they will rot away. Notice verse number 36. He's speaking to a people that were seeking Jesus. You get that? We began this where they were looking for him. Not just looking for him, flipping on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, you know, where you don't have to leave your living room to look for Jesus. They got in boats and they traveled to find out where he was. They ate his bread. They saw his miracles. They heard him preach and teach. He healed their sick. I mean, these people were close to him. They were anticipating, waiting on the Messiah. Jesus says, you are continuing on in your unbelief. Notice he says, but I say unto you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You have seen all these things, all of these witnesses, all of these signs, and yet you remain unconvinced. D.A. Carson notes in his commentary, this crowd was witnessed, the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. And there is a difference, isn't there? Or aren't there? And how many in our current culture has heard the message of Jesus Christ over and over and yet they remain hearing the gospel, under, understanding it, and yet still remain in unbelief. They see him without seeing him. And we might ask ourselves, if all of this is the case, then where lies the success of Jesus' ministry? Verse number 37, 
He gives that to us. Notice it with me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will in no wise, or I will never cast out. Isn't that a remarkable word from the mouth of Jesus? In fact, what you read on down through this, that his conversation or his sermon gets more difficult as he goes, so much so that many of the people that are following him said, this is too hard for us, we can't understand. But what is he saying here, the success of Jesus' ministry, this gift of God coming to the earth, faced with a, a group of Galileans and their unbelief, looks at them and says, the success of this rests not on you, it rests on the Father who has given me a people. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He points us back to the sovereign plan and purpose of God. The divine assurance of Jesus' ministry is found in the active work and will of the Father. He has given the world the Son, John 3.16, hasn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And he has given to his son a people out of the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. All, we could say all those that the Father has given me will come to me. Look at the good news in that passage. All of those, we may refer to those as the elect or those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world solely upon his will and in his infinite wisdom, all of them that the Father gives to the Son, he gives as a gift. If you're a believer this morning, you are a gift to the Son of God and a gift to what he has done on the cross, his obedience. But notice that word there in the sentence of verse 37. The Father gives me, will come to me. Don't you like that wording? doesn't say they might come, they should come, or they could come. But he says, whoever the Father has given to the Son, they will come. For they will not stay outside. They will come. And I don't know, maybe you've been in that situation, how many believers thought themselves too far from God. Living in their sin, the rebellion against Him without the will and the desire to follow Jesus. Yet the Father's effectual love has secured them for the Son, and they came. And you came. And one of which is remarkable in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul, isn't it? On his road to Damascus at enmity with Christ and his gospel, God arrested him along the way, inter, inter, interceded, interrupted his mission, and brought him to Christ. I think Jesus tells us this revelation, this revealing our utter dependence upon God. We are in need for his intervention, but also that you and I might not live in the confidence of our own flesh and our own ability. We are constantly brought back to that Old Testament uh, Reality that salvation is of the Lord as the prophets tell us and we contribute only the sin which made it necessary. I had this song in my head uh, this morning and last night as I was trying to sleep 
It's not easy when you have a song in your head. Nevertheless, he says, I once was lost in darkest night, and yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Dear friends, if you're in Christ this morning, that is your anthem. While you were at enmity with God, he comes and rescues us, delivers us. But notice three words of comfort, I think, that come out of this. He says, whoever, notice um, the end of that verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Jesus will be received. I think that's plain in the text. He is not misguided. He knows his sheep. He knows those who are his. And whoever comes to him repenting and turning from their sins, looking to him by faith, he receives. He does not reject. Secondly, I think implied in the text is not only will they come to him and will be received, but they will be kept by him. The idea here is that he will never cast out or never never drive away. They will be kept in his fold. He will preserve them and keep them. Verse 38 and 39, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. Those who... And the Father has given to the Son, Jesus will not lose but raise up in the last day. They will be kept, they will be received, but they will also not be condemned. Notice back with me chapter number 5 for a moment. Chapter number 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus is referring to in John chapter number 6 is this judgment day reality. That that day, that last day, is the day in which Jesus will come back and He will reward everyone according to their works. And he says, those who come to him, he will not lose. They will not suffer in that day, but he will give them everlasting life. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a current reality and a future promise. We have great hope in our Savior this morning. You might recall Paul's words to 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Do you know that? Do you trust that? Do you believe that? I know it's in the Bible, but do you believe it? Jesus gives us great comfort and hope. 
I know some people look at the doctrine of election, which he deals with here and further on, as a death knell for evangelism and, and a difficult doctrine for the church. And truly it is possible that we can wander into the eternal purpose of God and the mystery beyond what we ought to. Yet you cannot dismiss the reality of the Son of God's words and what he's saying right here. We must, as the Father told his disciples, hear him. But I want you to consider this with me in verse number 40, that no person will ever say here in this room this morning, in Jesus' day or in the future, that they came to Christ by faith and he did not receive them. No damned soul in hell can charge him of rejecting them when they obey this command to come and believe. In fact, we are instructed that this is the very Father's will, verse number 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The gospel command, the imperative, the The implication of the gospel is that we are to turn from our sins, our way of living, and look to the Son and believe. The problem with this crowd, they saw the Son, but they didn't see Him for who He is, and they did not believe. And if you would make your salvation here this morning, election sure, as Peter says, if you were to be comforted by these these great comforts that Christ provides for us in His work on the cross, then the only place you're going to find it is in Him. It isn't in yourself. It isn't gazing in the mirror deep and long, waiting for something just to magically appear. The only place you and I find assurance and comfort and hope is looking to Jesus and believing. It is here God has set his seal and declared his purpose and provides our satisfaction for our deepest needs and desires. We're to look to Christ if we are to live. In fact, the song I quoted just a minute ago is titled, All I Have is Christ. The repeated refrain in it is, Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Dear friends, is he your life this morning? Is he the substance of your life? I would challenge you to see him and believe to come to him by faith, not for stuff, but for who he is and receive the life which he has come to give. Forgiveness. He receives us. We belong to him. He keeps us and saves us. His grace provides all those things to those who come to him. Amen? And if you're outside of Christ now, then that is the command for you. Look and believe. In church this morning, I hope we find again our comfort and fullness in him. The bread of life, the Father's gracious gift to us and his gracious plan. And I would add to that and the son's resolute obedience of the one who has come to do the will of the Father. And that is to lose none that belong to him. It seems like you lose a lot of stuff. We lose loved ones, friends. We lose things. Sometimes we lose our mind. 
we are surrounded by loss and decay. And yet you and I come back to this eternal word and be reminded that what Christ has given to us, what he offers to us continually to those where he is, is life, is food, is substance, is satisfaction that will never decay. I think we should be like the people here, sir, give us this bread always. Well, they wanted the stuff, but we, we want him. Amen. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we've gathered together. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts, even let these words marinate on our minds as we leave this place and in our conversations. God, I, I pray for those who are here this morning, if any do not know you, have never put their faith and trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would see in him a fullness, a satisfaction, they would see in him who he is and that they would come to him and believe. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes for this. Lord, I pray for the rest of us that you would continue to keep our eyes open to the beauty and the majesty and the fullness of the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.